Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, we have been reading the story of the first Christians together from the book of Acts. And this morning, we're going to look at the place where we, we uh, discover where that name, uh, Christians, actually came from. So I'm going to read from Acts 11, verses 19 through 30. You can follow along where it's printed in the order of worship, or you can follow along in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from the end of Acts 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we just sang together, and we ask that you would give your word success. And uh, we confess that we don't know what that needs to look like for each of us in here. What would it look like to give your word success to me or to any of us? So, Father, we ask that you would do that work, that you would, by your spirit, meet us, every one of us, in the place where we are this morning and work success in the way that you define it. Do good and make beauty and restoration in the way that you will do it. Meet those of us who have faith and those of us who don't. Those of us who are ready and eager to hear from you, those of us who are not. Those of us who feel really close to you, those of us who feel far from you, meet us and show us the word that bears our flesh. Change us by his grace. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So at the beginning of last month, uh, our daughter Sarah took a trip to France with her eighth grade French class. It was an exchange trip. Uh, the year before, we had hosted a student from France, and so this year, uh, Sarah stayed with her and her family. So she was in the southern part of France in the city of Toulouse. It looked incredibly beautiful from the pictures. Uh, and she was gone over a Sunday, and on that particular Sunday, uh, I had a couple of meetings here after the church services, and then I went home later in the afternoon. I don't uh, remember exactly why, but everyone else was gone, so it was just me and the dog at the house, which was fine by me. Uh, I stretched out on the couch. I turned on the TV uh, to watch some soccer. Um, 
Truth be told, I was fully intending to fall asleep watching a soccer game. So I surfed around for one, and happily, I found a game that was being played in the French League One. Uh, it was Paris Saint-Germain versus Toulouse. And lo and behold, they were playing in Toulouse, in the very place where Sarah was staying. So I thought that was pretty cool. I quickly took a picture of the screen, and I texted it to Sarah because I thought she'd get a kick out of it. And I wrote, hey, I'm watching Toulouse FC play right now. About a minute later, uh, I got a text back from her, and it said, me too. And it was a picture from inside the stadium. <laughs> she was actually there watching the game in person, and I got so excited, and I confess I also got really jealous. I sent her this big burst of texts. I wanted to make sure that she knew how fun this was, how exciting this was. I wanted her to know that she was watching at least two of the best players in the world play right then, that she was watching Kylian Mbappe, who had just scored, in front of her very eyes. But of course, I, I didn't need to tell Sarah how exciting and fun it was, <laughs> because she was actually there <laughs> in flesh and blood amid the songs and the chants and the roars of the fans. I was the guy watching TV with the dog. <laughs> Nothing compares to actually being there. <laughs> and that idea animates the story that we just read together. Something incredible, something unprecedented, something exciting is going on at Antioch. And as soon as the news of what's happening gets back to HQ in Jerusalem, they spring into action. This news sounds amazing, but they know nothing compares to actually being there. So they send Barnabas on a trip to Antioch, and he finds himself in the middle of this vital, scrappy church learning to follow Jesus. And I think there is a lot for people like us in this story a lot our own church can learn from that scrappy, vital church. But Luke starts the story in verse 19 by going backwards. He reminds us about the persecution that arose over Stephen and that the Christians were scattered after that persecution. We talked about that way back in February when we read Acts 6 and 7 together. Stephen's story, you might remember, is a short story, but it is incredibly compelling. He was like this bright, beautiful, blazing star among the first Christians, full of grace and power. And so not surprisingly, he attracted the attention of the enemies of the church, and they frame him, and they kill him. And his martyrdom was like blood in the water. Luke tells us that on that day, a great persecution started against the church in Jerusalem. And just like that, the first Christians scattered all over the place in fear for their lives. The only ones who stayed in Jerusalem that day were the apostles. It was a horrible day. It was a day filled with fear, a day filled with brutal violence. And I'm sure that the first Christians, if they had been given the opportunity to write the script, would not have written the script that way. Right? If they were writing the story of how they came to be, Stephen wouldn't have been killed. Stephen would have lived a good, long, fruitful life. They would have had him for a long time. 
If they were writing the script, they wouldn't have had to flee from their home, from their families, from their livelihoods, from people that they love. They would have just been able to stay there in Jerusalem, the place they loved. But they didn't get to write the script. And I'm sure that many of us here have at some point in our lives related to that feeling. That if we could write the script, there are times where we would write it differently. That if we could write the script for the people that we love, we would at times write it very differently than how it has worked out. I've thought that a lot of times over the last year about my own family, honestly. I'll bet every one of us here wishes that there was stuff that they could write out or write differently in their lives. Stuff that we've done, stuff that's been done to us, stuff that's happened to us or the people that we love. But of course, we don't get to write it. Our stories are part of a larger story and we don't get to see the whole story at once. And you know every human being has to come to terms with this at some point or another in their lives that we're not in control. It's not easy to come to terms with. And we fight against it, and our fight causes no end of trouble. But part of the distinctively Christian hope that we have, church, is that out of the darkest, out of the most painful things, the things we would never choose for ourselves, God can bring beauty and grace and good. Now, trust me, I I would never say that to you or to anybody if I did not believe that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. But I do believe, and he has been resurrected. And precisely because that's true, you and I can know that God has, and he does, and he will make all things new. And so if you are in a part of your story right now that you wish were different, please, please allow yourself to look for signs of resurrection. Allow yourself to look for signs of new life, even in the very, very dark middle of things. Allow yourself to see the good and the grace and even the beauty that Jesus is faithfully working in this thing that would otherwise seem completely hopeless because he is working faithfully in it. You don't have to take my word for that. That's what he said. He said it in the gospel lesson. I am with you always. So in Acts, we get to see some of the grace and the good and the beauty that came out of the darkness and violence of martyrdom and persecution. And that goodness and grace and beauty is that unlikely people, unexpected people, surprising people get to hear about Jesus and believe. They get to hear about Jesus because they are coming into contact with these scattered Christians. I mean, the first Christians had to run, but they ran with really, really good news. And so first, the Samaritans, these longtime co-antagonists with God's people, they hear about Jesus And they believe. And then this court official, this eunuch from the court of Candace, he hears about Jesus and believes. And he takes this really good news back with him to the Nubian Empire. And then as we've seen over the last two weeks, there's this Roman centurion named Cornelius. This guy that represents the power and the threat of Rome. 
And he hears about Jesus, and he believes. That's the beauty that arises out of the first persecution, that Jesus is making people new and that he is building his church. That's why Tertullian would later say that the blood of the martyrs is seed. And it just keeps on going. Luke says in the passage that we read that some of the first Christians made it all the way up north to Antioch. And they preached Jesus to the Hellenists. We'll get back to what that word means in a minute. Let me tell you quickly about Antioch. Antioch was one of the greatest crossroads of trade and of culture in the ancient world. It was about 15 miles in from the Mediterranean Sea, from the coast, on a great river, a wide river. And geographically, it meant that uh, fully half of the travelers in the settled world would eventually come through Antioch at one point or another. It was a choke point for travel, for trade. It dubbed itself as the Queen of the East, that city. And it was often referred to as the third city of the Roman Empire. It was an important city. Its inhabitants came from all over. It was incredibly, incredibly cosmopolitan. And so the Hellenists is Luke's way of talking about people who speak Greek. But that's not all that he is indicating when he uses that word. He's also indicating that these people were fully pagan people. They had absolutely no familiarity at all with the story of Scripture. I mean, the Samaritans, the Ethiopian official from the court of Candace, Cornelius the centurion, they they all at least knew a little bit of the story of Scripture, but these people have no frame of reference at all. So this is a first. The first time these people, their ears, had ever heard the name Jesus the Nazarene was from these scattered Christians. In church, it was like they had been waiting to hear about him their whole lives. It was like Psalm 86 that we heard. It was like it came alive. There is no God like you. And Luke says, they believed. A great number believed. And it's beautiful. And so this is where we get back to where we started The news of what's happening in Antioch makes its way back to Jerusalem where the apostles were. Now it's hard to tell the chronology exactly, but this is probably six or eight years after that persecution had broken out. So the apostles aren't alone in Jerusalem anymore. There are other Christians, although we don't really know how many there were. But no matter how big or small the church was there, it was definitely the heart of the church. Jerusalem was definitely the heart of the church. And it was the heart because the apostles were there. These are the guys Jesus had commissioned with the job of building the church. These are the guys who had known Jesus. These are the guys who had lived and laughed and loved and fought and cried with Jesus for years. These are the guys who hung on every word he said. These are the guys who ran away from him when it mattered the most. These are the guys who were welcomed back into the fold over a breakfast of fish on the beach. These are the guys, 
And they are the ones who stayed in Jerusalem. So, of course, Jerusalem is the heart of the church. And they hear about what's going on in Antioch, and no doubt it was exciting to them. No doubt it was thrilling to them. But let's be honest and be realistic for a minute. It was probably scary and strange to them, too. Maybe it was a little bit threatening to them. I mean, almost every follower of Jesus they had ever known, almost every follower of Jesus that they had ever heard about was pretty much like them. (laughs) They shared the same basic worldview. They shared the same basic values. Every follower of Jesus, almost everyone they had ever heard of or known, kind of looked like them and kind of ate like them. (laughs) But these people in Antioch, who knows who they are? (laughs) Who are those people who live up there in in the wild north? Can they really understand our Jesus in the way that he wants to be understood? Can they really follow Jesus in the way that he said he he wanted to be followed? Are they going to be able to live like he wants them to live? I mean, of course they ask these questions because they're human beings. And Jesus had given them a job to do. And they want to do it the best that they can. So while they definitely want to hear more about what's going on in Antioch and join the celebration, they also want to make sure it's okay. And I hope, church, that we can have the humility to see that as a good thing. I mean, I know, I know we live in a culture, we swim in a world that sees tradition, that sees authority as largely something to burn down. You know, we look and we see all the biases of people in the past and our impulse is basically to throw it out. (laughs) And in some ways that impulse exists in every generation that comes up in the West. I mean, I'm part of Generation X. Disdaining authority is part of our brand. It's also dumb and short-sighted. Because when we do that, we fantasize that we don't have our own biases, that we don't have our own blind spots, and we definitely do. And when we disdain authority, we fantasize that whoever is alive now, whoever's just walking around with blood pumping through their body right now, we're the ones who know best how to be human. And that's absurd. I mean, take a look around the world. We're not exactly squared away. We're not exactly tearing it up. And so the apostles, both in their physical presence in Jerusalem and after they died in their writings, these are the people that Jesus set up for the church to check itself against in order to keep on the right track. And a church that simply just kind of caves or sells out or conforms to whatever culture it finds itself in is far, far less than the church that Jesus intended. He called us to be salt for the good of the world. He called us to be light for the good of the world. And we cannot do that unless we check ourselves against his teaching and his loves and his intentions for the world. So I'm glad. I'm glad the apostles wanted to send someone not only to celebrate, but to check things out too. So they put their heads together and they pick the guy with the biggest heart they know. (laughs) They picked Barnabas, and I love that they picked Barnabas. We don't know much about Barnabas, but what little we do know about him is really good. His real name was Joseph. 
But the apostles gave him a nickname. His nickname is Barnabas. It means son of encouragement. He is the kind of guy that you want to have at every one of your parties. You definitely want him there. He's like how we should be with each other all of the time. Barnabas was looking for good in other people all of the time. He was always calling out that good in other people, drawing it out and fanning it into flame. That's who Barnabas was. That's what he had done with Saul the great persecutor of the church, after Saul had been knocked to the road outside of Damascus, everyone else in the church was suspicious of Saul. Everyone was afraid of Saul, but not Barnabas. He saw what was good and beautiful. And he called it out, and he fanned it into flame, and he brokered Saul's first meeting with the apostles. So that's the guy they send. It's a great pick. Luke wants us to know it's a great pick. In verse 24, he says, Barnabas is a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And Barnabas rolls into Antioch, and he sees this motley, weird band of former pagans cramming into people's houses on the first day of every week, singing their songs too loud, listening to preachers preach, taking care of each other, trying to learn to live and love like Jesus lived and loved. And he sees that and he calls it just like he sees it. He saw the grace of God and he was glad. It checks out okay. Jesus is making people new up here in Antioch, just like he does back there in Jerusalem. And he just has this one encouragement for them. It's in verse 23. He says, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, this is what he's saying to them. Settle in for the long haul. Do what you need to make sure that the roots of your faith go deep and that they get nourished with everything that they need. Do everything in your power. This is what Barnabas is saying. Do everything in your power to make your faith durable and sturdy and resilient so that you won't fall away when things are hard. And so for his part in all of this, Barnabas knows just the guy. (laughs) He knows just the guy who can help. And he leaves Antioch and he goes to Tarsus, even further north, and he looks around for Saul. So Saul's been absent from the story of Acts and what he has been doing for these last few years since his conversion outside of Damascus is anybody's guess. But Barnabas knows if there's one guy who is smart enough... If there's one guy who is dedicated enough, if there is one guy whose mind is fertile and supple enough to teach these crazy people how to follow Jesus, it's Saul. I know he's got it in him. And so he goes and he gets him. And Saul, who most of us know best by his Greek name, Paul, He gets activated. And I'm not kidding when I say this, church. The world will never be the same again. The world gets turned upside down because Barnabas goes and fetches Paul because he sees the good and he calls it out. We live in a very different world. That is a fact of history. And so they come back together and they teach and they nurture these new Christians for a year. 
so that they will grow deep and resilient and sturdy roots. And they grow in number too. They start to stick out in Antioch. People start to take notice about this group of people. And so they give them a name. That's where we got our name in Antioch. The disciples were first called Christians. And I just want to say that all of us, starting here with the preacher, we need this kind of nurture too. We need to get settled in for the long haul. We need to do everything that we can to make sure the roots of our faith go deep and that they get nourished with everything that they need. We need to do everything that we can on our side of things to make our own faith durable and sturdy and resilient. So I just want to say, put yourself in the places where that can happen. Not just as we worship together on Sundays, but also in our growing and learning together in our small groups, in our Christian education classes, in Fourth Wednesday, in our discipleship cohorts. These things exist to nourish our faith, to make us resilient people. And when we do that, we change in really concrete ways. And the story ends with a great example of that. It's in verses 27 through 30. A prophet named Agabus comes to Antioch, and he correctly predicts that a famine is on the horizon. And the response of this new scrappy church in Antioch is surprising, and it is deeply, deeply encouraging. They hear that this famine is coming, and they determined, everyone according to their own ability, to send relief to the church in Judea. (laughs) In other words, they don't say, how are we going to survive? They don't say, how are we going to marshal our resources to take care of us? They say, how can we help those who need help. How can we give of ourselves for the good of others? And church, that kind of glad generosity is proof positive that the roots of their faith have indeed gone deep and that they're being nourished by the good news of Jesus. And it is proof positive because it reflects the life of Jesus. For your good, for my good, for the good of the world, Because that kind of glad generosity was the shape of Jesus' life. He gave himself for us and for the good of the world. (laughs) And so, of course, these new Christians at Antioch, whose lives have been completely changed by the glad generosity of Jesus, turn that generosity out for the good of others. (laughs) As it happened to our mothers and fathers in Antioch, so may it happen to us. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this story of unlikely people hearing the good news of Jesus and becoming new again. Father, we thank you for the story of a guy named Barnabas who looks around and he sees the good and he calls it out and nourishes it. Father, we ask that you would help us as individuals and us as a church to learn from this story for our own good, that we would be a people who do everything that we can to have our roots go deep, to have a faith that is sturdy, a faith that is resilient, so that when we enter into those parts of the story that we wish were not there, we do not fall away. We remain with Jesus who remains with us. Father, do this for our good. Do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.